we're willing to be generous to someone who's come to faith and uh, who has a criminal record or who has a drug addiction. But if they're a same-sex couple or if they're a same-sex attracted person, we feel we have to go out of our way to tell them that they're sinners. <laughs> Angelo, welcome to The Political Animals. Thank you for, for having me on, Jonathan. Angelo, why don't you tell listeners a little bit about who you are? Sure. Um, so uh, I live in Melbourne. I live in the Republic of Danistan. Um, <laughs> um, I'm the child of uh, Eastern European migrants. So my parents came here from Romania um, on my mother's side. Um, <clears throat> my grandfather came seeking political asylum in Australia and on my father's side, um, they were fleeing religious persecution. Um, uh, specifically my family were Protestants in Romania and they were not treated particularly well. Um, and personally, uh, I study law and global studies, uh, and I'm looking, uh, in the future to one day enter the political sphere, hopefully working in public policy. Currently I work in family law, so I assist, um, as a paralegal in divorce applications and property disputes, custody disputes, those sorts of things. That's a complicated and, uh, fraught area of law. Oh, absolutely. Um, and I think uh, sometimes I have to be very careful to hold back um, some of my opinions <laughs> <laughs> during my during my job. Um, and sometimes it can be quite emotionally charged. Um, oh, I can only imagine. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, Angela, you're also, uh, if you don't mind me saying, a young fella. And I believe we discussed this briefly off, off air. You are my first Gen Z guest yes i am tell people how old you are <laughs> um well i'm i'm the first of the uh millennium babies i'm born in 2000 um i'm quite young um and so i i feel a little bit like um uh, like i'm in the shadow of a lot of your previous guests um with their towering phds and um you know uh, martin isles is the head of the australian christian lobby so i'm quite conscious of that um but I'm very thankful that I can be a representative for the best generation. <laughs> the best. It's, it's probably too early to, to see if it is the best, given um, I'm sure you'll agree Gen X is objectively easily the best generation. But, mm. <laughs> but we, we, we will recede from the uh, scene before too long and Gen Z may well supersede us in due course. Well, but well sociology, um, sociological studies indicate that my generation is the most conservative uh, in my mindset wise since world war two so i think i, think I have we, heard that actually we secure yeah. the title of the best generation we beat gen x <laughs> well in you know as history books are read once they're up to um generation gamma or something in the in the future they may look back and say you know maybe we all know baby boomers are the ones that really stuffed it up for everyone but <laughs> gen x pro certainly didn't do anything to help so maybe the history books in 100 years will show that this amazing generation, Gen Z, was the one that came and put it all back together again. I hope so. I really hope so. But time will tell. In any event, we're not here to discuss um, <laughs> why your generation might eventually <laughs> come up to the heights of Gen X. Uh, there's something else interesting about you, Angelo. So why don't you tell listeners what that is? Yep. 
Um, so I am uh, a devout Christian who happens to experience same-sex attraction. Um, I've been attracted to members of the same sex since I was quite young, um, retrospectively at least. It's easy to see. Um, and so, yeah, navigating that with my faith has been uh, an interesting experience. Um, I choose not to act on my sexual attractions because I believe that the um, that the scriptures call me to uh, uh, singleness and that sex is confined between a marriage between one man and one woman. So Angelo uh, does a lot there, obviously, that I and I imagine a lot of listeners would be keen to learn about and hear about. Why don't you, if I can take you back to the beginning, not not the <laughs> beginning of creation, beginning, <laughs> but back to the starting point of your own journey. Um, and you, you mentioned you, you first experienced same-sex attraction quite quite young so mm. i understand you 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 have grown up in a uh, and you can correct me if i'm wrong conservative christian yes household and i imagine coming having growing up in a family from romania mm. maybe there, there was some sort of culturally conservative mores in there even beyond yep. christianity so when and how did you you first learn or become aware of your same-sex attraction, uh, how did you feel about that? How did you process it? Um, yeah. And let's go from there. Sure. Um, well, it's it's complex <laughs> and it's imagine. taken a very long time. I think a lot of things are easier to see in retrospect. Um, but I've always felt very different um, in terms of gender Um I think from when, from quite a young age, when I was two or three, I used to like playing with Barbies. I used to like playing with dolls. Um, whenever I used to play imaginary games with my twin or with, with my siblings or friends, I would always take on a female character. Now, I don't think that's necessarily linked to my sexual orientation, but I think looking retrospectively, it does show that I have felt a, a bit of a disconnect for quite a while going back. Um, uh, and so I felt quite alien, uh, fr from a very young age. I always felt different from the other boys. Uh, my voice is higher than, um, many members of my sex. And so I used to get teased for that, um, mm -hmm. from, from a young age. And so I always felt, um, quite odd, but when I reached the ages of 10 or 11, um, or actually I think a bit later, when I was coming into puberty, and I suppose it would be the time that most young people are becoming aware of this new aspect of who they are, um, sexuality, uh, I began to realize quite slowly that I wasn't attracted to, to women, right? Um, I remember being at Sunday school uh, in grade five or grade six, and just not relating with like I, I constantly treated the girls like they had cooties, you know. I, I couldn't understand why anyone would want to get married, right? I used to say, <laughs> oh, uh, I'm going to be single for the rest of my life. And I think looking retrospectively, I think part of that is because I hadn't experienced attraction to women um, or any of those feelings, and so I just didn't understand it. Um, I was about uh, 12 or 13 when I first was exposed to, I suppose, a, a sexual image 
um, in, in some a family friend's bedroom. And I think that's when I started to realize, uh, I suppose that I was a sexual being, but I didn't realize that I was attracted to men at that point. Um, I just knew I, I was attracted to something. Um, and I felt really dirty whenever, uh, I had sexual thoughts. It took me quite a while to realize that they were not directed towards men, that they were directed towards women. I think one, uh, Sorry, they were not directed to women. They were directed towards men. Forgive me. Um, one occasion that um, comes to mind that I think is quite iconic, just very Melbourne story, a very um, immigrant story. I was in a kebab shop, um, Turkish kebabs specifically, um, with my family and a group of teenagers walked in. I think I was about 13. And one of them was wearing a very low cut singlet. I don't know if you've seen them. Um, I, I, I hate them, but... Uh, it's something the young people wear today where, you know, the, the, the armholes are very, very low cut and you can see a lot of the torso, the person wearing it. And my eyes were drawn to, to the person who was wearing it and I couldn't like stop. I just really wanted to look at them. I found them very attractive. And then it kind of struck me that I was looking at a male in a way that I'd heard people look at women and that was really that was really scary, um, very very scary. And I remember thinking, you know, am am, am I gay? Um, I'm attracted to to the same sex. This is no 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 that, that can't be right. And um, I think I can't remember if it was that night or a few nights after I. Uh, my family's very interesting. We're quite Pentecostal, right? So sometimes mm -hmm. my father would walk into the room and he's, and he would say, and I'm, I'm one of six kids. So there's a lot of us, I'm in the middle. He'd say, I think, um, some of you have a few things you need to talk to me about. Uh, God's put it on my heart that, um, there's something going on. Um, and so I remember one particular night and there was a trail of us going into mum and dad's bedroom and coming out. We were all confessing different things. You're all having a session. <laughs> yeah, we were all having a session with, with our parents. And uh, I thought, wait a second, I need to, I should probably talk to mum and dad about, about this because I felt a, a distinct sense of shame um, around what I was going through. And so I, I went to my parents and I went to my dad and I was like, dad, I think... I think I might be attracted to men. Um, and oh, his response was quite funny. Um, I was lucky. I had quite a good response and uh, I'm quite thankful. But his initial response was, oh, you know, Angelo, a lot of, a lot of men like to look on other, like, like to look at attractive men because they want to have bodies like that. And I was like, no, dad, I don't, I don't think that's what it is. Um, uh, and I think it took a while for my parents to understand what I was trying to say. But when they did, um, I think their response was the best that they could have done in those circumstances. Um, they told me they loved me. Um, and they told me that, you know, this doesn't change my masculinity. Um, there was a big emphasis on, you know, I'm still a man. Um, God's made me in a certain way and I can choose to, you know, they, they quoted the Bible verses, a man thinkest, so is he. And so they wanted me to know that they love me and that I'm still a child of God. Um, that being said, I don't think my parents knew how to address the issue. Um, I think it was quite foreign to them and I didn't know how to address the issue. Um, there were nights when I used to cry myself to sleep because I was so ashamed. I thought that I was, I didn't necessarily think I was condemned purely because of my orientation, but I thought the 
it was inevitable that one day I was going to give in mm -hmm. to my temptations and that that would eternally damn me. Um, and I would cry myself to sleep. I would pray, you know, day in, day out that it would change. And I think my parents for a while thought that maybe it could. Um, I, I it was very, very painful experience. I contemplated at one point uh, even castrating myself um, because I thought that I was an abomination. I thought that these feelings that I had were extremely perverse. Every single time that I would be in a public area or I or I was watching a show and I saw a man that was attractive, I would be crippled with shame. Um, it, it was it's hard to put into words how painful it was. Um, sorry, I'm getting a bit teary. It was a very very hard time to go through, and I'm very happy that that part of my life um, has come to an end. Um, one of the iconic moments uh, uh, where I think my attitude started to change was I, um, I was on a youth camp. I was about 15 at this point. Um, and uh, they were doing prayer after a service and I'm, I'm Pentecostal. I go to a mega church. And so these youth camps was 500, 600 young people, <laughs> right. And there's camp. strobe lights everywhere. And I was homeschooled and into classical music. And so I found all the strobe lights a bit confronting, but you know, they did that Pentecostal thing where they manipulate your emotions. I'm joking. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, but no, there was, there was worship and there was devotions and it was a very emotional atmosphere and people were going up to the leaders asking for prayer. And so I thought, oh, I really want, I really want to talk to one of my youth leaders about this. And so I, I went through the crowd. I pushed my way to the front and I went to one of the head youth pastors and I took him aside and I said to him, <laughs> and this is where you might see my Pentecostalism colored a bit of my um, perspective. I said, um, look, I have a homosexual demon in me because I thought I thought I was possessed at one point. Um, and I'm like, can can you exorcise it? Can you kick it out of me? Um, and his response was so profound. And, and looking back, I think it's it, it's so clear in retrospect. But he said to me, um, he brought up the story of, I think, Peter walking on the water. And he said, look, Angelo, when Peter was um, looking at Jesus, he was walking on the water, but when he looked at the waves and the storm, he sunk. And so his point was, you know, uh, what I think God wants you to do is instead of focusing on your sin and focusing on what you're trying to fight against, um, I think you should be focusing on him and focusing on walking towards Christ and leave the rest of it in God's hands. And I, I, at that time, I was really angry at that response. I was like, damn it, you, you couldn't exorcise it. You couldn't just get rid of it. I was like, I've been praying for this to go for years and years, and you couldn't just lay hands on me and speak in tongues and kick out, kick out these unwanted attractions. Um, but Looking back, yeah, I, I don't think I can overstate how impactful it was because um, I think it touches on, I suppose, some principles even of psychology. There's, there's an, a, an analogy, you know, when you tell someone not to think of a pink elephant, all they're going to think of is a pink elephant. And I was doing that with my sexuality. My sexuality was becoming this barrier between myself and Christ, and I don't think that was productive whatsoever. Um, you know, the scriptures talk about how, you know, as far as the East is from the West, so I have separated your sins from you. And so I kept 
bringing my sin back and being like, no, God, here's, this is a barrier uh, between us. And I don't think God ever thought of it like that. Um, and so over time, I suppose those thoughts kind of changed the way I thought. Um, I always felt alone, though. It took a long time until I started meeting other Christians like me, I think, um, because I was homeschooled and I grew up in quite a conservative household, I had very little access to the internet. Um, the only internet time I had was supervised. Um, and that was until I was 18. Um, so for quite a long time. Um, but I saw on my iPad, my mum's iPad, she was on Christian Times. And I saw an article about some young Christians in America who had started a blog for Christians who experience same-sex attraction. And they were all same-sex attracted um, and that, that was like a bit, well, not a slap in the face. It was just a bit, it was confronting because I thought I was alone. Part of mm. my pain was nobody understands what I'm going through and I'm so isolated. Um, and for a long time I was, um, but then I started reading these blogs, um, and it was, oh, it was pretty pretty profound because these people were talking about the things that I'd been struggling with since my early teens, things that, um, unique pain, I suppose that I had that I didn't feel that my peers did. Um, and so that meant a lot. And so since then I've, I've been on a journey. Um, I've, uh, you know, I've had the opportunity to read a lot of books on this. I, I know quite a lot of Christians who are in the same position as me, um, there's the reality is there's a lot of us. Um, mm. I don't think the church realizes there is, but we're everywhere. Um, <laughs> I used to, uh, sometimes when I had been struggling with pornography or something, I'd go to a youth leader and I'd, I'd mentioned it. And there was one occasion where, um, I said, you know, I'm struggling with temptations towards, you know, the same sex. And this youth leader burst into tears and he said, Angelo, I've had the same problem my whole life. And, I've never told anyone until now. Um, wow. I've had that happen to me a few times in different contexts. Sometimes it's been youth leaders. Sometimes it's been other young people just because of I ventured to uh, expose this part of my myself. And I think being open about it has helped a lot um, because I've had the opportunity to meet people who are going through the same thing and to bond over it and to, you know, to really wrestle with, um, to really wrestle with the issues. But yeah, I hope that makes sense. <laughs> that makes perfect sense. That's really quite an amazing, uh, story. And I'm just, I feel really privileged to listen to it and, um, to help broadcast it actually, because I think we, those of us who are Christians are not same sex attracted. You know, we've we've done a great job at trying to pretend you don't exist. Mm, oh yes, <laughs> and uh, we we need to not just acknowledge the existence, but really actually listen um, to your experience and others like it, so that you do not have to walk alone in isolation. Look, if I can, um, uh, you're very articulate. That was like a superb job. I feel like I could just let you go on for the whole show. You probably don't need me, but um, I am notionally the guest, so I'll, I'll <laughs> at least move us between some different topics. Um, Angelo, if I can move you to the issue of theology. Mm. Um, I guess it's interesting for, for 
those Christians and particularly, I guess, theologians and Christian leaders who aren't same-sex attracted, although this is probably changing now as uh, particularly more young people find the courage to be open about their um, sexuality in the church, including in conservative, theologically Mm -hmm. conservative churches, I guess for those who don't experience it personally or don't have a family member or a close friend, They've tended to look at this very abstract, like a theological mm. problem, and it and a lot of the argy bargy in the church between the more progressive liberal wings and the more conservative evangelical Pentecostal. Yeah, it's all around. It's it's a very exegetical conversation. It's you know what does Paul teach on mm. same sex relations? How do we make sense of homosexuality? You know, there's there's long been the view in the church that it, it is a sin per se. That is some kind of mark of sin to even experience same-sex attraction. Uh, There's another prevalent view that says, well, it's not a sin per se, but we make sense of it theologically as just part of the disorder and brokenness Mm. of the world, bearing in mind that there's a lot of heterosexual dysfunction and brokenness too. It's not like (laughs) there's this pristine... Uh, sorry, did I say home? I meant heterosexual. Said, not, yeah, yeah. It's not like there's this these perfect pristine heterosexuals over over here. I mean, you know, there's there's general dysfunction with human sexuality. I guess is the Christian view of sin. But then, of course, we, we've got to acknowledge within the church there are people that um, don't actually think there's anything sinful with homosexuality. They mm. think that the kind of teaching in the scripture on uh, sex between two men and two women is a kind of enculturated ignorance and we have a better understanding now that this is kind of biologically natural or, mm. or whatever. Ever. So I, may, I can only imagine that you have wrestled with this theological question uh, too, probably much more than someone like, like me. Um, where, where have you come down how, how, sure. where, where have, how do you make theological sense of your own sexuality? Um, that's also been a journey. <laughs> um, uh, I, it's taken a lot of thinking, a lot of wrestling. Even now, I think I'm still refining what I think on this issue. And I think my age uh, is an attestment to that. I'm 21. I've still got a life ahead of me and time to pray and think about this. And I do think it's a complex issue. Um. Uh, I think, so for me, I'll link this a bit back. I'll go back a bit because I think it's linked with my story. Um, so one of the first times I came out to people that weren't my family was actually in a theological argument, right? Because I've I've grown up in a very conservative household and I was quite good at, uh, I suppose, following what I was supposed to. Um, I was quite dogmatic. And so I was at... Um, I was part of a youth organization specifically um, for boys. Um, And we had a devotions where, um, actually, no, sorry, there wasn't a devotions on it, but we we were talking about sex and homosexuality. And one of my, uh, one of the leaders, he was a bit older than I was, two or three years, was saying that he didn't think that um, homosexuality was sinful and that the passages, there's six specific passages, which I can touch on later, but he didn't think any of them, were addressed specifically towards loving same-sex relationships. And I said to him, (laughs) oh, 16-year-old me, um, I said to him, uh, well, I I disagree with that. I think, you know, the scriptures are quite clear on it. 
Um, and I said, would it change your mind if you knew that this opinion was coming from someone who, uh, you know, experiences same-sex attraction? And I wasn't intending to out myself, but he said, oh, are you, are you telling me that, that you struggle with same-sex attraction? And I got very flustered and I was like, oh, no, I have to say it now. I don't like lying. And so I was like, yes, I do. And unfortunately for me, 16-year-old me, that didn't change his mind. That wasn't enough. Um, the fact that I was trying to use identity politics on him. Um, my testimony is this. No, that didn't work. Um, <laughs> um, and so at that point in time, I started wrestling through this, the passages because I didn't like that this person disagreed with me. And um, I really wanted to uh, understand the depths of the passages um, and I don't think that was the right attitude to take. Uh, I don't think it was, I was being quite contrarian. I think the point of it was, you know, I need to beat this guy in an argument. Um, and so I started wrestling through the scriptures um, uh, and that kind of introduced me to the whole scene. Um, and so I can touch, uh, there's three passages that are used a lot from the Old Testament and three that are used in the New. Um, and so uh, two of the major ones that, uh, in the Old Testament is the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. A lot of Christians bring that up when they want to discuss the issue of sexuality, specifically homosexuality. Um, I don't think that's a very good passage to look at in this particular context, because I think the point of the story of Sodom and Gomorrah isn't that homosexuality is sinful, it's that sexual immorality is sinful. Um, and the sins of Sodom and Gomorrah were not necessarily, yes, I think, homosexuality was one of them. But I think the point of that story is not to emphasize that, you know, uh, we need to, God will burn the gays with fire from heaven. You know, Sodom was a very sinful city. And I, I think sexual immorality was just one of those sins. Um, the next passage is in Leviticus. I can't remember the specific verses, but it's it says um, in quite strong words, a man shall not lie with a man. Um, I can't remember if it adds on as he lies with a woman, something like that. Um, a lot of the argument around that passage centers around whether as Christians, we're still bound by the old Levitical laws. Um, so uh, the typical uh, gay affirming Christian argument. So that's the, the argument that says that, you know, the Bible does condone loving same-sex relationships. Um, they argue that uh, it's, it should be read in the same context as the ceremonial laws in Leviticus. So the fact that, you know, the Jews were told by God not to eat shellfish, not to mix fabrics. So therefore polyester is a sin, um, like those sorts of things. Um, and then the opposite argument from, I suppose, where I fall. So the, uh, the terminology is, so I'm side B, which means that I think that the Bible uh, doesn't condemn people who experience same-sex attraction but I think it, it, uh, I think sex is created for marriage between one man and one woman. And so I choose not to act on my sexual feelings. So I'm called side B. And then the other side, the affirming side is called side A. Um, so the, uh, the argument over that passage, what my side argues is that, um, uh, in Leviticus, there's, natural laws that are being discussed and laws around sexual immorality. And then there's laws around ceremonial things like um, being unclean till evening, those sorts of things um, that had to do with Jewish rituals. And so I would argue that the, uh, 
natural law aspects of Leviticus, specifically around sexual morality, still apply today. If you look, um, I think it's in Acts, I think at the Council of Jerusalem, there's a discussion about what laws the Gentiles should follow. And uh, they come to a consensus that uh, the Gentile believers do not need to be circumcised like the Jews do. Uh, They don't need to follow a lot of the Levitical laws, but they do need to adhere to sexual morality. Um, And I think there's also something there about uh, not eating blood from animals, something like that. I can't remember the exact passage. Um, And so I think uh, under that term sexual morality, when it's read in the context of what the Jews believed at that time, I believe that that is um, that, you know, uh, marriage is between one man and one woman. Um, the, The New Testament passages, I believe there's one in Romans, one in Corinthians and one in Timothy. Um, I forget which one, um, uh, that, oh, Israel Falau was pulled up on. I can't remember which Mm -hmm. one that was, but the word that Paul uses in the New Testament when he talks about homosexuality is, um, in the Greek, arsenokoitai, um, and a lot of, uh, theologians, specifically side A theologians, uh, highlight the fact that this word isn't really used. It's, it's not found elsewhere in other Greek texts. It's not discussed. It seems to be this new word that Paul's invented. And so we can't be sure exactly what it's trying to say. Um, um, to that, I respond that I think um, arsenokoitai is just a contraction and it's it, it goes back to the Levitical terms, right? A man shall not lie with a man. Um, it's my understanding that arsenokoitai um, is the word man and, and koitai, coitus, comes from, I think, that word, isn't it? And so I think um, it relates to, you know, men having sex with one another. Um, now, even then, there's another argument from the affirming side, uh, which is probably their most prominent argument. It's uh, pushed by Christians like Matthew Vines. He wrote God and the Gay Christian. Um, he argues that when Paul was writing that at the time, he wasn't talking about loving same-sex relationships because those didn't exist in the ancient world. Um, when you look back, homosexuality is a very ancient practice, almost as ancient as humanity. Um, and in ancient Greece, for example, the Spartan men used to teach the young boys the ways of, of sex, right, which is essentially a, you know, a fluffed-up way of saying that they were pedophiles, right? And so there was a system where the older man would uh, be the dominant uh, sexual actor and the and the boy would be the passive sexual actor. And he was teaching the boys how to have sex in the future. Um, there was a lot of abusive sexual practices. It used to be when you'd conquer a country um, to assert dominance over the men, you'd, you'd rape the men, right? Because of this, it's very shameful to have a, yourself violated in that way in the ancient world. Um, I, I'm not entirely sure that that argument, uh, like I do think there is a, a degree of merit to it, but when looking at those passages, and, and I'd like to, again, preface, I'm not a theologian, um, specifically, I think, I think it's in Timothy or maybe it's in Romans. I'm forgetting. There's a passage where it talks about, um, male homosexuality and female homosexuality. So it talks about where they burned with lust for each other. I think it also touches idolatry. Um, The reality is it's comparing it to female homosexuality. And in the ancient world, there was never this same kind of abusive practices in female homosexuality. Um, It was usually consensual. I think 
um, if you look at some of the ancient uh, lesbians in history, like Sappho um, from the island of Lesbos, I think a lot of it was consensual. It was romantic. I also think that it's patently wrong to state that there weren't loving same-sex relationships in the ancient world. I think um, human nature is the same across the timeline. And um, there were uh, same-sex couples at that time, probably not as visible and um, yeah, probably not as visible as they are today. But I think it's a little bit, uh, I think you're arguing from what you want to hear. If, if you're saying that, if that's your reason for dismissing the argument, but all of that aside, I don't think you even need to reference passages about um, that specifically mention homosexuality. I think the Bible's quite clear um, on sex being created um, for a man and a woman. Um, I think uh, the the marriage of one man and one woman is sacred, and it's a reflection. Um, of God's relationship with the church, Paul compares us to the, you know, we are the bride and Christ is the groom. Um, and so I think when you go about trying to change what that means, I think you need to be very careful. One thing that I think is very important when looking at all of the uh, biblical statements on sexuality is that none of them condemn attraction or a state of being they condemn action, right? It's action that is sinful, right? So uh, there's uh, in the Old Testament in, in Leviticus, it specifically says when a man lies with a man. It doesn't say when a man wants to lie with a man. It says nothing of the sort. Now we know as Christians that Jesus did raise the standard when he talks about how if you even look on a woman with lust, you've sinned in your heart. But the reality is God also created us as sexual beings and um, most red-blooded men are going to be attracted to a woman, uh, an attractive woman when she enters the door. That's not necessarily what's wrong. What's wrong is dwelling on it and lusting after the woman. There's nothing wrong with the fact that God's created us to appreciate his beauty. Um, and so I think for Christians like me who experience same-sex attraction, I think it's the same. It's absolutely the same. Um, a lot of people don't always understand or they think they don't understand the same-sex attracted experience, but I think it's exactly the same as a heterosexuals. The reality is I experience attraction the same way heterosexuals do. I still have the body of a man. I'm still hardwired like a man. So if I see someone attractive, I want to look at that. And so I need to choose consciously not to, um, which is the exact same thing that a heterosexual has to do. Let me move. I mean, you do such a good job of uh, addressing every issue. I can just move straight on. So I want to raise the issue of celibacy. And mm -hmm. you used an interesting term earlier, I think, singleness. Mm. And I think you you said you have chosen not to, I, I, I can't remember the exact language you used. It was something to the effect of that, you know, I've chosen not to act on my same-sex mm -hmm. attraction. Can you talk a little bit about, the extent to which celibacy is the right word for sure. Sure. your, I don't even know the language here, vocation or the word that's coming into my, my mind life. is lifestyle <laughs> choice, but that's a shockingly bad. Oh. Um, <laughs> <laughs> we'll get into that. Um, Probably yeah. just betrays my own <clears throat> prejudice, but let just talk a bit about celibacy and singleness. Sure. Um, so I think, um, and I think I discussed this a bit with you before the podcast, 
this is an area where language is particularly charged and a lot of things mean different things to different people. Um, for example, there's difficulty with me even using saying that I'm same-sex attracted. Some people would say that that's identifying with sin and even worse to say I'm a gay Christian. That's even worse. How dare I do that? Um, I think with celibacy, uh, I want to be attentive because I think um, celibacy speaks to uh, an ancient tradition that's been in our faith since its inception. Um, Jesus was celibate. Uh, Paul was celibate. Um, and the Catholic Church uh, and the Orthodox Church, I think, have done a good job of maintaining celibacy as a chosen vocation. I think as Protestants, that's something that we can probably borrow from them again. Um, <clears throat> and so in that context, I think celibacy is, you know, taking an oath um, of committing yourself to being celibate and uh, having God fill up that time in your life. Um, and I think as Christians in the contemporary society, I don't think we do a very good job of catering for people who are celibate like that. Um, marriage, I think, is often even fetishized, I think, mm. particularly in evangelical culture. The pinnacle of being a Christian, the pinnacle of being a man is when you're married and when you have three little adorable children and, you know, a good paying job, you're, you're firmly in the middle class and you're donating, you know, to conservative Christian lobbies and you're an active member of Australian society and your church. Um, and I, I'm not condemning that. I think that's a beautiful thing. I just don't think that's everyone's story. Um, uh, looking at, I used to find solace in this as, as a, uh, when I was struggling with my sexuality, but if you look at the way that Paul talks about celibacy and singleness, uh, he says, you know, for those of you without self-control, that's the term, <laughs> that's the words used, you can marry. Um, but, uh, you know, celibacy is, uh, or is it Christ that says that? Uh, I'm forgetting. I've I've read the Bible too many times and it's all muddled now. I think it is Paul that, uh, oh, actually now, now I'm doubting myself. Yeah, <laughs> it's okay. We can confirm in the show notes. Um, <laughs> um, but uh, you know, for those of you without self-control, get married, but, you know, being single, uh, you know, is a good choice. It's it's an active choice. And I think it opens a lot of doors. The reality is that when you're actively seeking to date someone or when you're married, your time, part of your time is going to go to your children. Part of your time is going to go to, if you're dating, finding that partner that you want to spend the rest of your life with. And the reality is someone who's committed to singleness or celibacy even they have more time and there's nothing better about that. The reality is they can just serve the church in a different way than a married couple can or, or a family can. And so I think the Catholic church, um, the idea of uh, celibate uh, bishops and I think the priesthood as well, I think um, is so fascinating because it, it, it seems to be quite deliberate um, designed in a way to keep people committed to the church. It makes me think of um, Star Wars and the fact that, you know, the Jedi are supposed to have an oath of celibacy so nothing distracts them. Um, that's a quite new age way of thinking of it, but I, I think it, it strikes at um, how important it is that we look after singleness. Um, I personally don't identify as celibate. That's something that I've come to a bit recently because I haven't taken an oath of celibacy. I'm not actively saying I want to be celibate for the rest of my life. I would say I'm single. Um, and I think there's a difference uh, 
uh, between that because for me, singleness is the state of being I'm in now. If God wants to change that situation, if I ever meet someone I fall in love with, uh, a woman, by the way, <laughs> I don't <laughs> think that's going to happen. But I'm, if that happens, um, then I, I think I would be lying to say that I, I'm celibate because that's not a lifelong commitment. For me, singleness is, is a state of being. I'm committed to my singleness now. I'm committed to serving God um, in ways that other people can't. Um, uh, so I choose to use the word singleness instead of um, celibacy. Yeah. Angelo, this is a, a perfect time, I think, to introduce the issue of con- conversion therapy, mm. which is, as you, I'm sure, are well aware, very uncontroversial, <laughs> yes. particularly down there in Victoria. Oh. Um, <laughs> look, I, I, I'm very interested to hear your your view mm. on conversion therapy as a kind of ministry sure. technique. Sure. I don't even know what you call it. Practice, I guess. Yeah, or a practice. Yeah, that's what the bill approach. calls it, a suppression but I'm also, practice. If I could just ask you personally, is conversion therapy, and I'm talking about one of the formal kind of ministries, was that something you ever considered, tried? Did people mm. suggest that you, you do that? Um, or was exorcism the only thing that, path that you explored (laughs) (laughs) um yes conversion therapy was something that i wanted at one point in my life um that was when i felt quite isolated and i don't think i'd realized that wait a second i can live a life devoted to christ and still have these same-sex attractions i thought i needed to get rid of them because i thought you know the christian path is to become heterosexual and to enter a marriage between one man and one woman and so there was a long time in my life where I did want that, um, uh, particularly when the only, I suppose, uh, people that I could seem to find online that understood what I was going through used the term ex-gay, which is what someone someone who's gone through conversion therapy, they often identify with that term ex-gay. And so I identified with that term for a little bit. Um, I have multiple critiques now, though, of conversion therapy, Um, some on a theological level, some on a psychological level, and some on a political level. Um, So there's a a bit of groundwork, I think, that I want to cover before I I get to that. Um, So since since the 60s or the 70s, there seems to be, there there, there seemed to arise this idea that sexuality is something that you're born with. Um, And I think that the reason that the gay rights movement brought up that discussion was actually as a rebuttal to what the Christians were saying, because there was this language of homosexuality is a lifestyle, right? And people choose to be homosexual. And so they just need to choose not to be. There's this idea that if you're gay in in Christian circles, and I think these assumptions are still around, or if you're same-sex attracted, um, it's it's one of two or three causes. One of it is because you're so sinful and you're so deeply involved in sexual immorality that now it's bleeded into homosexuality. So I've heard the discussion a lot. You know, if if someone watches too much porn, essentially they can become homosexual over time, while their orders become uh, disordered, right? Right, while their attractions become disordered, quote unquote. Um, and I know some people who might resonate with that story. Um, they might say that that's why they think they're same-sex attracted. So there's that. Um, there's another one uh, that uh, is, I suppose, you're brainwashed into becoming um, a homosexual. Uh, you've been exposed to the gay agenda and now you're a gay. Um, and there's also an idea of, I suppose, you being a bit of intersex, right, or the old term that used to be used even in case law 
Um, there's a few cases in family law where the term's used to hermaphrodite, but it's not PC anymore. Um, so you have something biological, and so there's that. Um, I don't think I fit into any of, I don't identify with any of those three. Um, and so, and I think Christians still seem to have this idea that it's a lifestyle that's chosen. Um, but I think the gay rights movement reacted to that and said, no, 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 it's not chosen. We're actually, uh, sexuality is as set as, as race. It's as set as gender. We're actually born, we're born this way. Um, and I think a lot of that was trying to piggyback on, you know, the, uh, uh, the rights movements going on in the United States, specifically around African-Americans and a little bit around Latinos and women, there was this idea that how can you mistreat someone or discriminate against someone merely based off something they haven't chosen, something that they were born into. Um, and so I think what's happened over time is that those sides have become more extreme and more set in their positions. And now they're, they're both ridiculously dogmatic. Um, and I think on the Christian side, the idea that it's a lifestyle has promoted this idea that uh, it's easy to get out of, it's easy to get rid of these attractions. And so conversion therapy mixed with Freudian psychology has, sorry, um, what am I saying? The, the dogma around homosexuality being a lifestyle has mixed with Freudian psychology and produced this idea of conversion therapy. Um, I think the reality is that we don't know why people are same-sex attracted. Um, identical twin studies show that there is a correlation somewhat between biology. So when, uh, but it's hard to make, to extrapolate too much from that because there's not many identical twins that happen to, one of them happens to be gay. But I think the correlation is something like 50%. And so that indicates that, I'm, I'm no psychologist, but that seems to indicate that there is some kind of biological link there because identical twins seem their orientations match up more than non-identical twins. And so there's something there, um, but it's not 100%. And if it was genetic and given that identical twins have identical genes, you'd assume that they'd have the same sexual orientation, but they don't. And so I think um, in line with a lot of modern thought on it, I think that it's a mix of both. Um, I think that, uh, some people are born with genetic predispositions. And I think some of that can be, I suppose, activated during their life or affected by nurture. But the reality is I don't think it actually matters. I don't think the cause of homosexuality matters. Francis Chan talks about how no matter how you've been born, you have to be born again. Um, and I like to talk about how I think that, I think that same-sex attraction um, is part of, I suppose, the fallenness of humanity. Um, and so as a same-sex attracted Christian, I'm just as fallen as everyone else. For me, it manifests in, I suppose, my attractions. But when Adam ate from the tree, I think sin entered our genetics. I think that began the decline. And so I think um, you might even be able to attribute sickness and death um, to the fact that, you know, when Adam ate from the tree and our our DNA was corrupted, I think, with sin. And so there's all these uh, symptoms of the fallenness. And none of them are statements. Uh, like, if you remember, there's the passage where the disciples see the blind man and they say to Jesus, um, who sinned for him to be blind? Um, and he's like, no, nobody did. Uh, this was so to, to glorify God. I think that's the same scenario for Christians who are same-sex attracted. I don't think uh, any of it has to do with 
uh, I sinned or I was particularly rebellious as a seven-year-old. Um, uh, I don't think it has anything to do with that. Now, bringing it back to conversion therapy, um, I think uh, what's happened is Christians have made this idol of heterosexuality and they've made this idol of marriage. And so they think that if you're same-sex attracted, you're fundamentally flawed in a way that other Christians are not and that something has to be done to remedy that so you can step into what God has for you, which is a marriage with with a woman and, you know, uh, the Australian dream, the quarter acre home, you know, that like white picket fences with little kids who look like you. I don't think, I don't think that's what God calls us to. Um, I actually think it's heretical um, and I condemn conversion therapy in the strongest terms because of that, because that promotes an idea that we need to achieve some kind of physical state in our lives before we can be saved. And the whole Protestant Reformation revolved around the idea, well, in my understanding, that we're not saved by our works, right? We're saved by the by by grace, you know? We're saved by God saying, you know what? I've got you covered. Christ died on the, uh, on the cross for you, and you don't need to worry about your sins anymore. Like, just repent and turn to me. Um, and so anything that creates that kind of barrier where it's something we have to do to make sure we're saved, I think should be condemned in the strongest terms. Um, and so conversion therapy creates that impression in young same-sex attracted people that we can't be saved as we are. We have to change. But, but the reality is I've done nothing inherently that's more sinful than anyone else. I haven't, I don't go to, uh, you know, I don't go to parties where dodgy things are going on. Like I'm a good little Christian. I don't do any of those um, things that would be associated with, I suppose, uh, the uh, immoral uh, gay rights movement, um, which is this idea that evangelicals seem to have about all gay people is that they're always out on the circuit, that they're ridiculously promiscuous. And that may be true for some gay people. Not for me. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, so I hope I hope that makes sense. Um, Conversion therapy uh, ha as a practice has changed. And so the language around it is very <clears throat> iffy. So it used to mean things like lobotomies and electroshock therapy, chemical castration. Um, if, if anyone's seen, I forget the film about Alan Turing, um, where he, about the, the code breaker who broke Enigma and helped to win, I think, World War II. Um, he was, he underwent... Um, state-enforced uh, conversion therapy, which is interesting because it shows that at the time <clears throat> it wasn't just a church thing. <clears throat> it was normal practice. Um, th there was an idea that homosexuality was a disorder and it had to be treated. Um, and so he underwent chemical castration, which really messed up his biochemistry, um, and he went on to commit suicide. Now, none of those practices are very prominent today. I, I haven't heard of any of those things going on. There are other kinds of coercive practices that do happen. Um, there's a good film that came out in the United States, <clears throat> which I actually think did quite a good job of being relatively unbiased. It's called Boy Erased and it stars Troy Sivan, who's a gay singer, and it touches on um, conversion therapy camps in the United States. And so there's scenes where there's a pastor who's literally hitting a young boy with a Bible, telling the demons to leave him. 
um, there's little exercises that they would do <clears throat> where you look at pornographic images and you wear a rubber band and, and or, or not necessarily pornographic images, but every time you thought of another man in a sexual way, you'd pull the rubber band and you'd let it flick against your hand. And so the idea was to teach your brain that, uh, to associate pain with the same sex attraction. There's also ideas that uh, if you're same sex attracted, it has something to do with your relationship with your father or your mother, which is a very Freudian way of looking at it. You had an absent father or a cold father and um, a very uh, obnoxious mother, um, those sorts of things. Um, I don't think any of that's productive. Um, and I can touch on that in my own personal life. When I was going through my little Freudian stage, I was trying to work out what caused me to be this way. Um, I ended up blaming my father in a way that's completely unchristian. I was very bitter against my dad. I thought, oh, dad didn't, dad didn't show me he loved me properly. Like I knew my father loved me. And that's something he would constantly tell us. But I thought, no, dad didn't express it in the right way that I needed. And because of that, I'm same-sex attracted because of there's this void around male love. And so I need that. And so I ended up almost hating my dad for quite a long time because it was his fault. Dad was the reason that I was same-sex attracted. And I got to this point where I was like, this is ridiculous. I know my father loves me. And yes, it's possible he hasn't always shown that to me in a way that I understood or I felt in the best way. But none of this is a reason to blame him for it. My father had no active role and we don't actually know why I'm same-sex attracted and it doesn't matter. What matters is that I love Christ with my whole heart, that I repent, that I turn towards him. Um, yeah, so I hope that makes sense. Um, it does, it Angela. Can I, um, at this point, I want to segue again. Yep. Very seamlessly to this issue of ex-gay, which which came yes. up in your um, repertoire there. And in particular, I'm, I'm mindful that we've seen a very famous case of this with mm-hmm. Milo Yiannopoulos, and I know you've um, followed him a, a bit. I'm not sure how much. He's, he's one public figure that I've been fascinated with for yes. quite a few years now, and how could you not be fascinated by oh, him? Yes. He's, he's quite a personality. Oh, yes. <laughs> and uh, as many listeners will know, he's undertaken, he's, he's, I guess, still in the process of a pretty spectacular conversion, both mm. to Christianity. He's always had a kind of Catholic faith of a sort, yes, but he, he, he seems to have had a, a kind of um, full-blown religious conversion of, of mm. sorts. And if anyone doesn't know who, who he is, who he is? He he was married to another man. He was um, a kind of right wing libertarian provocateur, mm. professional troll, and he Old has. <laughs> it's un- you might know more than me. It's a bit unclear exactly what is going on, but he he basically has stopped being sexually intimate with his um, husband. I don't mm-hmm. know if they're in the process of getting divorced. I'm not yeah. sure if he even would describe himself as ex-gay, but he's a kind of really vivid and emblematic uh, image of this idea that that you can actually achieve the thing that at one stage in your life earlier you did want to achieve, which Mm. is to uh, be converted to a a heterosexual. So Mm. I'd be interested in both your thoughts on Milo and his journey. Yeah. But also, I mean, you've you've, uh, condemned conversion therapy and you've been quite articulate about uh why that is the case what what do you make of the whole ex-gay 
phenomenon. Do you think, is that a case that there are some people who, for whatever reason, are able to become heterosexuals, but it's not for all yep. gay Christians? Are you skeptical about the sort of wisdom mm. or the longevity? I don't know if anyone's done any research into it. Um, yeah, there, there is actually quite a lot of research into that. I'll just preface what I'm saying with um, I do believe in the miraculous. I do believe I'm I'm a Pentecostal. I believe God can do radical things. I believe God can heal. I believe God can change. I also believe that sexuality is more fluid than we say it is. Um, but I'm also a cynic and I'll elaborate um, on, on those reasons. So um, one of the most prominent conversion therapy organizations in the past, I suppose, 20, 30 years, I think it started in the 90s or maybe the 80s, um, is Exodus International. Um, Exodus International was a huge, uh, I think, international organization, but based in the United States that promoted conversion therapy um, to help change the attractions of same-sex attracted young people. Um, and it, the they used to say that 90% of people who underwent these, therapy, these therapies would change their orientation and now identified as ex-gay. And over time, that number went lower and lower. So it went from 90% to 50% and then 30% and then 10% until eventually the organization shut down and its head, um, Alan Chambers, um, I think he's, I don't even know if he's a Christian anymore. He said uh, publicly, almost none of the people who came to us and underwent conversion therapy actually changed their orientation, right? Which is interesting because you talk to a lot of these people who did go through these therapies and clearly something's changed, right? They're no longer identifying with the term, with the term gay. Um, they identify as ex-gay. But what, what does ex-gay mean? Um, this is where you can see how linguistically charged this issue is because there's so many people who are talking past each other because there's no consensus on terms. So you'd assume, and most of, most secular people when they listen, when they hear ex-gay, what they think that means is that you're not gay anymore, you don't experience same-sex attractions anymore, now you're just attracted to women, right? If In the male case or in the female case, now you're just attracted to men. Um, that is is not what a lot of people mean when they say they're ex-gay. Um, so there's this idea that in, with conversion therapies that you get you get out what you put in. So a lot of people uh, kind of do a fake it till you make it scenario, scenario where they, you know, they wake up every day and say, the kind of, I am a heterosexual. God made me to be a heterosexual. Um, I'm no longer identifying with the term gay even though they may still experience same-sex attractions. And so if you ask them, do you still experience same-sex attractions? They'll say, um, God's changed me. And they might say, I'm, I'm ex-gay and I'm stepping into what God has for me. Other people, when they say ex-gay, they mean they don't live in the gay lifestyle anymore. So those might be people who um, were involved in, in the gay uh, gay scene and you know would go out partying, that sort of thing. And so when they say ex-gay, they mean they're not gay in the political sense of the term, right? They're not a gay activist. They're not marching at pride marches. Um, but a lot of them still experience um, same-sex attraction. There's a really good podcast on it, actually, uh, Preston Sprinkle. I think he speaks with a guy named Greg Cole. I think he shares your last name. Um, <laughs> I'm pretty sure that's the name. If not, I can 
can fix it in the show notes. Um, He's but- one of about 20 million coals <laughs> on the planet. Mm. Talk about having a boring uh, English surname. Um, and Greg Cole is a same-sex attracted Presbyterian pastor, um, and he talks about how uh, a lot of people who use the term ex-gay are unclear on what it means. Um, and there's a few studies that have been done that have shown that the number of people whose orientations have actually changed is ridiculously small. And even then it's hard to know because a lot of it's measured by questions, subjective questions. Um, and so there's no way of knowing whether that person still experiences attraction to men or not. Um, conversion therapy as it's practiced today, a lot of it is just counseling and talking people through um, porn addictions and that sort of thing. And so someone might say that their conversion therapy has helped and they've changed because let's say they've lost their sex addiction, which is a brilliant thing. And I support that. Um, I'm just wary of using the term conversion therapy. Now, Milo Yiannopoulos comes into this at this stage um, after there's been a huge discussion over what these terms mean. And he's brought his very characteristic um, provocateur traits. He's he's a, a big contrarian. And I think part of the reason he's using the term ex-gay is because he knows it's provocative and he knows it's a charged term. Um, if you look at uh, his his talks before he uh, had this revelation, if that's if that's how you want to put it, um, he used to use quite strong language just to provoke people. He would call himself um, I won't I won't say the word, but a very offensive word for gay people. He used to use that quite frequently to describe himself. Um, uh, he, he loves to be very graphic with these things. Um, he recently did an interview with Lauren Chen. I think that's her name. She's a, a Protestant conservative commentator in the United States where he discussed um, what all of this means to him. Um, he stated that he doesn't think that his orientation can change much at this stage because He's in a later part of his life and he's less malleable. But he still thinks that there are changes that can happen. And there has been change in him. And I think you can see it. He seems to be more in love with God than he was before, which is a beautiful thing. I still think there's a lot of things he's doing that's wrong. And as a Christian, I'm hoping that, you know, in the process of salvation, in the process of changing, that God shows him um, things that he has to change. Um, I don't think as Christians we should be approaching the public arena with a confrontational attitude um, or as contrarians or provocateurs. I don't think we're called to be that at any point. Um, but he wants to open uh, a conversion practice in in Florida to help young gay people. Um, it seems to me that he wants to make them heterosexual, but he also talks about just bringing them out of uh, the gay lifestyle um, whatever that's supposed to mean, if, if it means promiscuity and it means sin and it means, um, a lot of those unique pains that I think are associated with promiscuity and with being involved in the gay community, good, good on him for that. But I think there's also misconceptions about, uh, sexuality being able to change, um, and misconceptions around the terminology. And I think, Yiannopoulos is being irresponsible just out of out of a misdirected uh, fervor coupled with his contrarianism. Um, 
And so that's where I'd I'd critique that. Angelo, um, I mean, the this is all about segues here, and and you just keep giving me layups for for a dunk. So I think Milo Yiannopoulos is a good place to move into the broader LGBTIQ movement, the mm. sort of secular uh, movement. Uh, Milo had a lot to say about that, and um, I'm really this is where your age is actually very interesting because as <laughs> a a sort of 21st century human being, mm. <laughs> a young guy. You're growing up in in even quite a radically different world from the one I grew up in the 80s and early 90s. Um, it may not surprise you to know that I, I finished high school in 1994. Oh, wow. And there wasn't was a single openly gay person wow. throughout my entire schooling. And yet I know looking back statistically there are definitely some gay or some same-sex attracted people in, say, my year 12 class. But even in 94, no one would have dared come out at my school. And the mm. sort of term LGBTIQ wasn't even around then. And because of that, it wasn't really something I ever thought about because it was so hidden and absent throughout my um, childhood. This wasn't a Christian school either. This was a, a public school down in Melbourne. So if, if there's anywhere where you'd think uh, yeah, this may have happened already then, that, that's just by way of saying that we're, we're in an age that really celebrates homosexuality or if it doesn't celebrate it, is is has elevated it to a kind of prominence of consciousness mm. right down to schools now. Uh, you learn at a very young age about homosexuality. It's um, my, my son actually when he was four came home from his – preschool public preschool mm. and he just randomly said in the car oh do you know that a man can marry a man and i was like that's interesting because obviously wow. the teacher was had found an opportunity to introduce it now as a father that doesn't bother me because he lives in a world in which men can marry men so it's like mm. a secret but it was just it's just the change like when i was four and going to preschool <laughs> oh yes uh that was a very different world so this is all by way of uh, i'm I'm curious to ask you, how do you feel as a, because the other thing is we haven't really touched on this. You are politically, I mean, mm. it's very clear you're theologically conservative, but you're you're cons- uh, politically very conservative, which puts mm. you politically on the other side of yes. where a lot of the LGBTIQ community is, although obviously we're talking generalizations here. It's not like you're the only um, conservative in this camp, but you are a Christian, mm. you feel called to a life of singleness, mm. uh, yet you're open about your sexuality, you've embraced it, you're honest, you accept it for what it is. So how do you feel about this age you live in? Because you are very much against the current. And one of the reasons why I was very keen to have this conversation with you is I just don't feel like we hear from... We hear we hear, we hear so much about... Um, trans and and gay this that and the other mm. and their voices which were let's face it were were neglected and marginalized there's Absolutely. no there's no two ways about that we hear a lot from them now mm. tv but i never hear from anyone yes <laughs> not publicly in the life of australia and i imagine it would be similar in the uk and canada and america mm. uh it's, it seems like there's no room for your voice no one, no one, and, I, and i'm guessing the lgbtiq community 
community would probably wish that you either got on board and hit the nightclubs or mm. got out of the way <laughs> and and vanish. Mm. So this is a very long way of coming to the question of how do you, how do you feel as a conservative politically and theologically single Christian same-sex attracted or or gay man towards both our current cultural moment where you should be out and proud and celebrated mm. and this, the whole political movement that revolves around the LGBTIQ community. Yeah. Um, I feel a huge complicated mix of emotions about the current state of affairs. Um, I would be remiss if I didn't state that I'm, I am thankful for elements of the gay rights movement because I actually think it's shown things that uh, society has been doing and Christians as well, that we need to be held to account for. Um, I think one thing people don't always know is that uh, in the concentration camps of Nazi Germany, it wasn't just Jews mm. um, that were put in there. It was gypsies. It was um, it was gay people. Um, there was a pink triangle that used to be worn on the sleeves of um, gay people or homosexuals in the camps. Um, and yes, that was Nazi Germany. And I'm not comparing Western uh contemporary Western liberal democracies to Nazi Germany. But the reality is that gay people have been marginalized for a long time and treated as if we are the scum of the earth, as if we are uh, immoral degenerates purely because of our sexual attractions. Um, and I am incredibly grateful that I live in a society that it's instant reaction to me, uh, or at least it's, it, it's instant reaction isn't to condemn me straight away when I just state the state of affairs in my life because that's what it is. Um, it's it's the situation I live in and it's very real and it's very real for thousands, and I mean thousands, probably hundreds of thousands of Christians in this country. Um, and so I'm very glad that I live in a society that does that. That being said, I do have my critiques and I don't think that um, uh, conservative gay people really have that much of a voice. It's nice to see um, some of my idols politically, not idols, some people I look up to. Uh, I like D Douglas Murray. I think Douglas Murray is brilliant. And he shows that uh, merely experiencing same-sex attraction isn't a statement of what your political viewpoint should be. Um, the reality is that gay people are just like straight people and we have different opinions on different things. Um, even on same-sex marriage for a while, Milo Yiannopoulos, even before he uh, began this uh, conversion therapy journey, when he was very open with his sexuality, he opposed same-sex marriage. Um, uh, yeah, he opposed same-sex marriage. My, my thoughts on it, um, I actually don't care that much about same-sex marriage anymore. I did when I was 17 and I campaigned for the No campaign. I I distribute pamphlets. At that point, I didn't tell anyone about my orientation. And there's still a lot of people in my life who don't know, and I'd like to keep it that way, not because of I don't want to be open, but because I think it's too hard to explain and it's just unnecessary. I don't need to explain it to everyone. Not only that, but if I can just butt in, Angelo, I think, you know, just because you're same-sex attracted doesn't give you an obligation to sort of wear a T-shirt. Absolutely. everyone. Yes. I mean, this is an area of private life. Mm. That heterosexuals are, are, are enjoy a cultural norm which says you don't have to talk about your sex life or your sex. You know, like no heterosexual goes around feeling like they have to talk about what attracts them and, and mm. the like. And 
now obviously there's there's a difference there's here reasons, for cultural yeah. and political and um, policy reasons, but I guess that's just my way of saying not that you need to hear it that I that I I think and I guess I'm just talking to non uh, same sex attracted Christians that I, I don't see any duty to be out with every mm. single. I don't think yes, you have to agreed. sort of state that every time you meet a Christian. Mm. Yeah, Sorry, yeah. I inter- interrupted your no, flow. No, no, no. I completely agree with you. Um, yeah, it's just a small facet of of my experience. It's not who I am. It says nothing about my political identity. Um, and there are a lot of gay conservative people. And there's also a lot of um, people who uh, are gay and still identify with religious faiths. I think in the United States, I think it's still a majority of gay people actually identify with a faith of some sort. Um one thing that particularly frustrates me, though, is there seems to be this idea that by Christians telling gay people, and this is in the political sphere, that uh, uh, we should be celibate or we should be abstinent or pursue singleness in the church. Um, there seems to be this idea that by denying us the right to have sex or, or, or telling us not to have sex, we're being denied a human right. I think to a certain extent that's true for straight people as well. Um, there seems to be this idea um, that I've I've observed, and I'm be interested to hear your thoughts. Society seems to be pushing this idea that everyone's entitled to sex, and if if you're denied sex, you're denied a human right. And I think um, it's it's such an interesting dialogue, and it's so broken because it creates this entitlement for sex. Um, even in some Christians, I think I think a lot of Christian young men seem to think that it's like they're entitled to get married and they're entitled to have sex one day. I don't think that's how it works. I don't think the Bible says, and each of you will one day be able to enjoy the pleasure of sex. No, no, that's not how it works. Sex isn't an entitlement. Um, uh, And what makes me particularly angry is when the legislative instruments of the state are weaponized against my particular viewpoint. And I think one example of that is the conversion therapy bill in my own state, um, which has to be in, to put it in like strong words, completely infuriated me. And I don't like to use this language, um, but I would say it's invalidated my identity and it's completely ignorant of my voice. Um, And I can elaborate on that. So you might think, given my strong condemnations of conversion therapy, I'd be happy to see a piece of legislation that bans it. And in part, I am. I'm happy to see a a piece of legislation that bans abusive conversion therapies, particularly on minors and people who don't have capacity to consent to these, Um, particularly when that involves a lobotomy or castration or shock therapy or, I suppose, just dousing people in shame. Um, but the reality is conversion therapies, as they are today, practiced in my state, often have nothing to do with converting an orientation, right? They have to do with counseling Christians to accept same-sex attractions or talking through those sorts of things. And the way the uh, the suppression bill is what it's called, the conversion, I forget the exact name of the bill. Um, I should know because I helped lobby against it in my own state, Um alongside ex-gay people who I disagree with, um, uh, which I'd like to note. But um, the way it's worded, me even explaining my testimony to someone 
is captured under the the scope of the bill. And I I can explore that. So I think it's section nine, which contains the criminal offenses. And I think section six, I might be wrong, might be section four, which defines conversion therapy practices. And it's such broad language that's used. It's a practice that's directed towards an individual with the intention of changing or suppressing their sexual orientation. Now, what does that mean, right? And as someone who studies law, Um, and who's invested in this conversation, I had to explore this question, right? Um, And so one thing that the courts will often do when they're trying to define ambiguous terms is they'll look at the dictionaries, they'll look at the intention of the legislature when they passed the bill. Um, So there's usually a purpose statement, for example, at the start of a bill, there's an explanatory memorandum which goes through each section and explains what that section's intended to do. And then there's the second reading speech where the minister responsible for that piece of legislation discusses the intention of the bill. Now, what I found incredibly concerning is that the attorney general in my own state um, at the time, so it was Jill Hennessy, um, in the explanatory memorandum and the second reading speech, she mentions that the bill is targeted at informal conversations. So it's not just practices in a clinical scenario, it's, it's informal conversations at a youth group. That's covered by this bill. And then she mentions encouraging someone to be abstinent or celibate because of their sexual orientation is classified as suppression, right? And you don't even need to look at that. You can look at a dictionary definition of suppression and it says to repress or to put down. Now, I'm concerned that if this goes before a tribunal or before a court, the judge will rightly say that... um, suppression is so broad that it should cover telling someone to be abstinent um, because of their sexual orientation. And another concerning thing there, which I highlighted, I was having a discussion um, with someone from uh, the Institute for Civil Society, Um, um, but I had a talk with one of the lawyers there. And the term sexual orientation is in the legislation is never specified as purely relating to gay people, right? And so if you think about it from a strict legalistic point of view, it's possible that this legislation covers the Catholic Church encouraging abstinence to its priesthood and to to bishops because you're telling them to suppress their sexual identity. And in, and in this in this age where your attractions are who you are, denying someone the right to act out on those is is considered a violation of human rights. Um, and for me, that's deeply, deeply concerning. And it shows that the state is weaponizing the legislative branch to enforce, whether they consciously realize or not, their own sexual ethic. And all of this should be noted, it's based on a study from Latrobe University in my state. Um, and Latrobe University is uh, one of the most left-wing universities in the Commonwealth. They have a very my, strong... That's my undergraduate alma mater. Oh, wow. <laughs> You'd probably... <laughs> I, know, I, I know how left-wing it is. <laughs> um, and their gender studies department, I think, is the, one of the most prominent in the state. And they conducted a study where they spoke to Christians who had gone through conversion therapy and admittedly, yes, went through abusive practices and felt a sense of shame and self-hatred that I don't think anyone should have to go through. But they only interviewed people who had negative experiences. They interviewed no one like me. They didn't interview um, prominent Australians um, like David Bennett. David Bennett is um, a theologian on this issue. He uh, was raised as a non-Christian and was quite 
prominent in the gay movement and then he converted to Christianity, um, which is a fascinating story. You can read in his book, um, A War of Loves. Um, quite, I found the book to be quite life-changing. And he's currently studying at Oxford. He's studying theology around sexual ethics. There was no effort made to consult him. There was no effort made to consult people like me. Um, and I think the reality is we might have been the best placed from the conservative side or just from the Christian side to talk about it. Um, the ex-gay movement in Victoria, which still has some of its members, they were quite prominent in fighting against the bill. But culturally, I think there's so much negative capital around that term that I don't think it did any good. And so a lot of them were meeting with MPs and saying, look, we've changed and we benefited from this. Um, but the MPs just believe they were brainwashed. Um, and so, yes, so I, I actually, I won't lie, I cried when the bill passed Parliament because it means that if I engage in my testimony, and I have quite a conservative testimony, um, a lot of Christians don't have a problem with what I think when I explain it. Some think that because I'm same-sex attracted or I even use the word gay, I'm, a, I'm, I'm doomed for hell, but most don't. Most can be quite understanding, even if there's still problematic issues there. Um, if I spoke to a young person and I said, look, um, these are my thoughts on the, in, on the issue, and if you ever need someone to talk to, I'm here for you um, and I'm here to pray for you, I think that God's called us to be celibate. I can be thrown in prison mm. up to five years. And the, the only thing that makes, to make it a criminal offense for me to be thrown in prison, it has to be shown that I've uh, caused harm, right? So causality, I, it doesn't, I don't need to be the prime cause. I just need to be one of the causes of the harm. And the harm can be anything from an anxiety disorder to something else. It doesn't matter if that person's consented to the conversation. It doesn't matter if they consented to the practice. It doesn't matter if they're in their 40s. Um, if they go to a therapist and they mention my name and they mention our discussion, it's very possible that therapist can report me or they can report me if they say 10 years later they decide that they disagree with me. They can report me and I can be hauled before a court or a tribunal and punished. Um, the legislation also enables a committee, I think, uh, to investigate churches and churches' curriculums and churches' doctrines and what the church is putting out. And that just infuriates me to no end. I find it quite ironic that 40 years ago, if I, if I was alive 40 years ago, 50, 60 years ago, I would have to hide my sexuality because of I'm afraid of the, the penalties. And it used to be criminal in Australia for quite a while. And now that I have the conservative position and I don't want to act on my sexuality. I'm not doing anything controversial except not having sex. Like I don't see what's so controversial about that. And I'm just open about that. I have to hide. I can't be open about that. I can be hauled before a court. Um, that's so, Angelo, th this is really quite extraordinary. And I hadn't appreciated this until hearing your testimony that this bill, which aims to protect gay people, perversely actually harms a certain marginalized part of the gay community, such Absolutely. as yourself, by criminalizing mm -hmm. <laughs> an important aspect of your life and testimony and freedom. Yes. To actually even just speak honestly mm -hmm. about who you are. I mean, that that is just mind-bogglingly extraordinary. I don't even know what to say about that. It's just uh, apart from the fact that it's just so deeply uh troubling and i assume the legislators here really driving it are just completely ignorant or or don't want to know 
that this bill really overreaches and actually harms the very people it purports yes yeah to help absolutely because because of its and look i i give i i'll give them i think they have a good intention um but because of the fluffy language and because of it's ambiguously worded they they can't seem to wrap their heads around the fact that it's actually doing harm and i think one thing that's important to note is for many young people who had the same experience as me, I it was never a question in my mind whether I would choose my sexuality over my faith, even though I don't like that dichotomy because I don't think that's an accurate dichotomy, but that was what I thought of it as. For me, it was always my faith first. And Martin Niles talks a bit about this, um, about you know people choosing their faith over these things and their faith being who they are. My faith is who I am. And it was never a question, but this bill stops those, me being able and young people like me to have conversations where we try and understand what does it look like to, um, to pick up my cross and to follow Christ. And that involves, that might involve abstinence. What does that look like? And so I think it creates even more damaging mental health um, ramifications because you have these people who are, don't have the opportunity to hear from experienced Christians who know what they're going through. And there's a lot that the church needs to change on that. But but now the conversation's going to be stilted. It was already stilted enough because churches were afraid of looking controversial. Now we can't only be afraid of being controversial. We have to be concerned that we're violating the law. And this doesn't just apply to Victorians. The legislation actually has ex, extra jurisdictional application, which means that if uh, if there's a podcast that's recorded in another state like this podcast that encourages gay people to uh, engage in conversion or suppression practices and a Victorian experiences harm from that, you can be hauled before a court. It's it's absurd. Well, I don't think that it's going to be enforced this authoritarian uh, in the next few years. I think that there's such incredible capacity for it to be enforced in an abusive way that we need to uh, get this discussion out there. I think the scariest thing about it is is both the precedent it sets because mm. it possibly opens the door to more overreach, legislative overreach. But the most disturbing element is, is the ignorance that it betrays. Mm. And so, for example, if you just step back and think about singleness, forget sexuality, just singleness. There are a lot of single heterosexual men and women Mm. Not everyone gets married, falls in love, meets someone. You know, not everyone is as obsessed with casual sex as yes. uh, Hollywood producers, <laughs> script writers, and directors. Um, the fact that they can't get their head around the fact that someone might not want to have sex <laughs> of volition, yeah, like not only choose a single life, but even find live a happy life, not mm. a life of misery. Uh, is is kind of disturbing and it goes to an earlier point of yours that we really have elevated sex to a disproportionate role in our culture mm. and so so much of everything in our culture seems to revolve around sex and sexuality now in a way that that can't possibly be healthy for an overall um community but i am uh, in saying that i'm conscious of time Angelo, and I, there is there is one more thing I think we is essential that we we cover mm-hmm. uh, before we uh, sign off, and that is I'd really appreciate your perspective, both personal and analytical, 
on how you think the church is currently, let's forget the history mm. today. Uh, how is the church, um, to what extent is it doing a good or a bad job in listening, accommodating, reacting, and dealing with the Christians in its midst like you? Um, so, yeah, I've got a lot, I think, that uh, to say on how the church is dealing with it today. I think one of the main points I'd like to make is that it's changed for the better. I think things are getting better. Um, there's a lot more publicity about this issue in Christian circles. I think part of that we can thank um, for col- we can thank cultural changes for the fact that it's okay to talk about sexuality now. Um, and so Christians are starting to realize, wait a second, um, the gospel isn't just for heterosexuals. Um, and there are gay people in our midst. There are same-sex attracted people in our midst. And so we do need to do something about that. Um, and so there's a plethora of brilliant books on the top that I'd love to recommend to people. Um, There's organizations like Living Out in the United Kingdom, um, which was started by a guy named Samuel Albury, who used to work for um, RZIM. Uh, Now, I don't want him to be tinted because of that. Um, He's actually a brilliant man. Um, Samuel Albury's written Is God Anti-Gay? He's written Seven Myths About Singleness, brilliant books that I think are great contributions to the the church. Um, there's also organizations in Australia. I think the, the Sydney Anglican Church has an organization, I think, called Living Faith, which ministers to um, Christians who experience same-sex attraction, um, and I've heard brilliant things from them. Um, but I still think there's a lot that can change, particularly I'm incredibly privileged that I live in Melbourne and that I live in an urban area and I live in a part of the church that isn't ridiculously dogmatic. Um, and so I can't always relate to reading the stories of Christians who've grown up in the South, in the United States, Christians like Wesley Hill, who wrote the seminal, one of the seminal books on this, um, Washington waiting, um, so much pain and such great mistreatment by the church. Um, there's a lot of churches, even in Australia, where you can't, if you're open about the fact that you experience same-sex attraction, you're denied uh, you're denied access to being part of the ministry teams um, because for some reason you're morally compromised or it's just too controversial for the church to have you there. And that really breaks my heart because that's not what church is about. Church is about community. Um, on community, I think, as well, that's another thing that the church needs to remember Um, As a Pentecostal, sometimes I have quite radical views, I suppose, on what church is supposed to look like. But I think the biggest emphasis of what church should be is community. Um, I think it's a sacred community. And when we can't provide community for a certain group because of something about them that we don't like, are we really being the church? Um, I'm very conservative. I am conservative on a lot of issues. I've been raised in a quite conservative household. I'm actually not that controversial. I can be a bit flamboyant. I can be a bit extravagant um, sometimes to get, I like to provoke people sometimes. But in reality, I don't think any of my views are that provocative to conservatism or to established evangelicalism. 
Um, and so I think, yeah, this is an issue that the church needs to start talking about. And there needs to be room for a conversation and there needs to be a room for people like me to work out what we think. Um, and I'll elaborate on that. So I think that often heterosexual Christians are given a leniency in terms of finding their feet on their faith, right? Challenging things, asking questions, you know, why, why should we refrain from having sex outside of marriage? Why is, uh, I don't know, masturbation wrong? What's wrong with divorce and remarriage, those sort of things. And they're allowed to have those discussions, but then same sex attracted Christians, we aren't allowed to talk about, about what being a same sex attracted Christian looks like, whether it's sinful or not. Um, there, I'm becoming quite frustrated, even though I understand these questions. I often get questions like, Angelo, um, there's this gay person and I want to invite them to this church event. What do I do? Or this uh, one question that I had, which I thought was quite funny. Um, oh, Angelo, one of my colleagues is throwing an event at their house and they're gay and they live with their partner. It's me going to their house. Is that, uh, is that exonerating them from their sin? Is that like, is that me affirming it? No, of course it's not. Like um, the reality is that we are lenient to other sins in the church constantly, like all the time. Um, my church, I find quite, uh, I adore my church and I've been there my whole life, but I quite, find it quite fascinating that on say in issues like divorce and remarriage, we're completely silent. And while we don't talk much about same-sex attraction, you're allowed to be divorced and remarried and part of leadership structures, but not same-sex attracted. And then there's another question of where Christians will ask, should I attend a wedding of a same-sex marriage? And I, my response is you should be consistent. If you refuse to attend the wedding of a same-sex marriage, then probably you should consider not attending the wedding of a divorced and remarried couple. Because Jesus actually explicitly mentions divorce and remarriage. He never explicitly mentions same-sex attraction. Maybe you should reconsider going to a wedding between a Christian and an unbeliever if you're not going to go to a same-sex marriage. Um, and so I think, yeah, the church needs to give room for young people to, to ask questions there and to deeply wrestle with it. I don't think people always appreciate, for me, this is about my life. This is about about how I'm going to pursue and glorify God for the rest of my life. And so I really want my decision not to be based out of this sense of obligation or duty. I don't want to build a prison for myself and live in it and torture myself. And, um, you know, I don't want to be saying, woe is me for the rest of my life. I want to have a life that I'm happy to live. And I want to be specific. I'm saying happy to live, not a life that's happy. I think there's a difference between the two. I want to look back and say, God, I'm so happy that I chose to be single and that I chose to be abstinent to pursue you right out of love for you, God. I don't want it to be, oh, no, I can't be gay and I can't sleep with a man because of the Bible says no. That's not what our faith is about. Our faith is not about shame. It's not about running away from sin. It's about running towards Christ. There's a difference between those two things. Um, and for some Christians, I don't know if there's a way that they can practice their faith and hold the beliefs I do. And so I think, I think we need to be generous and compassionate in that area. That doesn't mean I agree with it, but we turn a lot of evangelicals end up turning issues of the culture war into 
into salvation issues and they're not you can be a christian and believe in climate change you can be a christian and believe in foreign aid and you can be a christian and this is probably the most controversial thing i'll say on the podcast you can be a christian and not believe same sex um uh, sex is a sin now i i disagree with the latter christian and i think that uh, they, they have room to grow and i'm here to discuss with them but i it's i think we make too many things a salvation issue we're willing to be generous to someone who's come to faith and uh, who has a criminal record or who has a drug addiction but if they're a same-sex couple or if they're a same-sex attracted person we feel we have to go out of our way to tell them that they're sinners no no i don't think so the first thing that we should be doing is ministering christ's love the first thing we should be doing is praying for them and and partying you know we should be happy that someone's come to the faith you know that the scriptures talk about you know heaven is joyful and jubilant when someone comes home that's what we need to do and it breaks my heart that so many people are missing out on the gospel because of the culture wars or because christians are scared to talk about this um or because of dogma um yeah <laughs> Angelo, I think this is a perfect time to close because I think that that was a, a wonderfully impassioned <laughs> sort of a message really to to the church in an area where we're, we're barely having the conversation. And so you've done a lot by coming on the podcast and having the courage to to do that very thing, talk about your own life which is the subject of a lot of a lot of <laughs> theoretical discussions in and out of the the church and so i'm incredibly uh grateful and feel privileged to have had this conversation with you and to amplify your voice so i just want to thank you for uh who you are and for um educating us and and sharing you're a very impressive and articulate young man and uh, <laughs> i look forward to seeing what you do in the future so this is a very long-winded uh i usually do long-winded intros or i used to <laughs> this is, this is a long winded outro so i should just get to the point and say thank you so much thanks for having me Jeff.